0: So today, we're going to talk about worship. Worship. Why worship? You may have asked that question a time or two. Why does worship matter? And and we all have conceptualized ideas about worship. Maybe we'll get into that in a moment. But often we wonder, why are we so preoccupied with worship? You might look around your community and your life and your family experience. And go, man, aren't there more pressing needs in our community? Or aren't we distracting ourselves with this adoration of God? Isn't our world crazy? And hasn't it been like 2,000 years since Jesus was on earth? Why, Why are we so committed to this idea of worship? Maybe you're feeling like you're a super efficient person. And you wonder if this isn't all a waste of time. A waste of life. Church family, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John chapter 4. Where I'm going to attempt to not preach three sermons. And skip through to where we need to spend most of our time. But there's some context here that matters. When we think about why we worship, my heart goes instantly to an encounter, a conversation Jesus had that changes our understanding of what it means to worship and follow God forever. In John chapter 4, verse 1, I, don't even, I didn't even tell our tech team to pull this all up. We were just going after it today. I hope you are all right with that. In John chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. Now Jesus, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. We're not going to break this down again. I'm rushing through, but I think it's important and notable that there's this unexpected departure. Jesus and his disciples are having great success. They're baptizing more People, then even John, the baptizer, had been baptizing, and he had been creating quite the stir across the nation. And in the face of that, dis- that success, when Jesus recognizes that it's happening and that others are taking notice, he leaves the scene. He had a mission from God. And he wasn't going to let even seeming success distract him from it. Church, I think it's important that we don't let success distract us from God's call or mission for us. It's sometimes possible for a church experience to feel like it's going so well that we want to hold on to that experience and not lean into what God is doing because we might risk the success of that moment. Jesus had an unexpected departure in the face of success because he would not let success distract him from God's mission. And so in verse 4 it says, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Knowing did he had an unexpected departure, he landed in an unexpected part of town. You may be familiar with The earthly division that existed between Samaritans and the Jews, how they hated each other because Samaritans, remnants of the nation, the northern nation of Israel, had been left behind after they had sinned as a nation and been deported by and large, but some had been left and had uh, followed other gods and abandoned some of the cultural commands of God and even decided to not believe the books of the Bible that were after the book of Deuteronomy, none of the prophets, none of the chronicles, none of the story of God's work and none of the psalms and none of the truths that God was declaring and still actively doing as he spoke to his people. And so the Samaritans were hated by the Jews and they didn't even want to walk through their part of town. But Jesus didn't allow earthly divisions to distract him from God's love for all. And then in verse 6, we see Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's getting late, it's getting hot, and Jesus has traveled far. He's feeling tired, and he'd like a time out. He'd like a break. He's going to rest. When a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Maybe another thought here. There was an unexpected departure to an unexpected part of town. And then Jesus had an unexpected conversation. Unexpected because, well, he was tired. I don't know about you, but... When you've put in a full day's work, do you really want to say yes when you're asked to stay longer, even for over hours? Or when you've given your all, are you really available to show extra grace and mercy to somebody in your life that you love, much less somebody not in your life that you culturally don't? So Unexpected because Jesus had put in his hours for the day and and maybe could have said, I'm just going to let this person go about their business. Also unexpected because this person was a woman, culturally, most men didn't give women the time of day. Culturally, as a Samaritan, most Jews would have abused this person verbally, maybe throwing things at her to get them far away because they did not appreciate what they stood for. An unexpected conversation. Jesus didn't allow his own interest or cultural interest of the day to distract him from God's work. And he has an unexpected conversation about new life. I'm going to skip forward here. He shares with this woman, we're never given her name, that living water was who he was. That he is living water and that whoever drinks from him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman is interested. She's interested. This sounds like a good deal, but she doesn't quite get the full picture of what Jesus is referring to. And so she, as the conversation continues, is asked a question of Jesus. He points something out about her personal life that he shouldn't have been able to know, and that likely uncovers some major areas of pain for her. Perhaps she dodges the question with a new direction in the conversation. Or perhaps it's that she's diving deeper into that, wondering if there's any possible way for her to be able to worship God, given the realities of her life. She asks a question, of Jesus, acknowledging that he must be of God because he knows something about her and this area of pain in her life, and she wants to know how to worship. So we pick it up again in verse 19, where Jesus says, well, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Here's the question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Samaritans, following a hybrid version of Judaism, for centuries now, had even erected a temple right there on Mount Gerizim, right at the slopes where this well was located. They're right near where this temple had been. It had been destroyed by an invading army about 100 years before, but they had still worshiped at this mountain. It had significance. Moses had commanded Joshua as they crossed the Jordan River. Before he died, Moses said to Joshua, when you get to the other side, go to Mount Gerizim right over there. You can see it from these mountains on this side of the Jordan. Set up and erect stones to remember God's faithfulness to you. It was there a thousand years ago. The Jewish people had remembered God's faithfulness. And so the Samaritans, having come from that lineage, still believing and holding to the first five books of the Bible through Deuteronomy, felt this was a holy space. So they felt Mount Gerizim to be an appropriate location to worship God, more appropriate than Jerusalem even though God had gone on to reveal that that is where his people should worship. So standing at this storied well, right at the base of the slopes of Mount Gerizim, she wonders, but I mean, who's interpreting Scripture best? The, us or them? The, the Jews or the, the Samaritans? Maybe she's wondering, is God even interested and me being able to know and worship him? Jesus gives her an answer. He says to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And Jesus answers this woman by saying, Listen, well, the Jews are actually right here. They have knowledge. They've continued to listen to the revelation of God. They are right on this question. But really, the question is out of date now anyway. They're right, but they're only right for now. They worship out of the knowledge of God, but change is here. True worship will no longer depend on a right location, the right custom, the right clothing, the right sacrifice, True worshipers will worship, he says, in spirit and in truth. More on that in a moment. But first, he goes on to say, true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This scene can go a thousand directions. But today, church, I want us to know this. God is seeking worshipers. Worship is ingrained in how he created us, who he created us to be. Stamped with his image, made after his nature to know and enjoy him. God is seeking worshipers. Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Jesus himself. Citing the Old Testament, citing the law, the Ten Commandments would say, You shall worship the Lord, your God. Him only shall you serve. Worship is something God desires. Because God is for God. God is for God. How could He not be? And He made us to be worshipers. That's how He created us. Worship then becomes our chief calling. You may recall or you may know the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question one famously says, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God. To enjoy him forever. In that sense, worship is a correct response to a worthy God. Worship is a correct response to a worthy God. He deserves our adoration, reverence, our pursuit of holiness, our songs, our joy, our passion, our delight in him. Worship is a correct response to a worthy God. There are things in life that are so something, they earn a response, right? Some things are so terrifying, they deserve a response. And we like to have fun with people who jump to that response when it's not deserved, right? Constantly maybe pranking people in your life, looking to scare them. Over the summer, we had some fun in my family, laughing at some members of a family who, you know, scream or gasp at undeserved things. It's fun. But some things earn a response. By the nature of their horror, we ought to lament, respond in anger at the injustice. By the nature of their wonder, we ought to respond in wonder. Did you go anywhere this summer or do anything? I mean, if you looked at the sky some of these evenings, didn't your soul shift as the sun went down? The sky lit up. Or maybe you traveled to a beautiful location like northwest Indiana on the lake. You didn't have to go far. I moved here, guys. It's amazing. Maybe you went to the Grand Canyon or the mountains or across the ocean somewhere, when we see things that are intrinsically incredible, there's a proper response. It almost moves itself out of us. A worthy that God deserves and receives a correct response. And we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ, whose lives are all about Him. So at this church... Knowing that God is seeking worshipers, we then as disciples must prioritize worship. And Jesus breaks it down. He says, worship ought to be done in spirit and in truth. He says in verse 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. As I was reading through some commentaries, I was struck by what one theologian said. He said there's three great musts. You must do something in all of John's Gospels. Only three. The first occurs in chapter 3 where Jesus says you must be born again. Another must is in chapter 14 where Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up. And in this chapter, chapter 4, in a conversation between Jesus and a woman of Samaria, we see a final must. All who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. So we see three great doctrines. The necessity we must have new birth. You must be born again. The necessity of Christ's death. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And then the necessity of true worship. Those three belong together. They fuel each other. What's it mean to worship then in spirit and truth? First, that God is seeking spiritual worshipers. God is seeking spiritual worshipers. Bethel Church family, we want to be spiritual worshipers. And spirit doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit but to the living human spirit, the spirit of a person who's been made alive by the Holy Spirit, as God calls them into faith in the person and work of Jesus. So spiritual worship is the worship of someone who's been made alive in their soul by the work of Jesus Christ. There's some realities that come from that. First, we have to acknowledge that worship then isn't merely physical, and that's maybe the chief takeaway Jesus was communicating to this woman at this moment. Worship isn't merely physical. It, doesn't, it isn't going to be limited at a mountain, whichever one you're arguing about. It isn't going to be limited to a temple. It isn't going to be limited to a sacrifice. It's more than merely physical. Worship is not one hour on Sunday mornings, or at Bethel, because we're better, an hour and 15 minutes. It's not showing up to church. It's not merely doing what you're supposed to do. It's not merely physical. This is a good point for me to stop and hedge that. What we do physically is spiritual worship. Romans 12.1 says, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It's your spiritual worship. So, What we do is worship, but it's not merely what we do that's worship. And church family, maybe I should take a moment to say we ought to leverage what we do physically in order to help us engage spiritually to worship. What we do physically can help us engage spiritually. When you're engaging God's word, isn't it true that great lighting reduces strain on your eyes and encourages you to Keep going in God's word and keep reading. Good posture helps you not get fatigued so that you can stay after the spiritual process of being illuminated by the Holy Spirit to understand his truth and glory in who he is. What you do physically matters. It would be foolish to try to read God's word while running on the treadmill and drinking coffee and feeding the children. You, that physically would not aid in your worship. That same sense when we sing today. Singing be one small aspect of worship Man, I I hear this thought in my head all the time. If I stand here with my hands in my pockets as we proclaim the life-changing, world-altering truths about a God whose majesty I can't comprehend, it doesn't mean I'm not worshiping, but it doesn't help me either, does it? Standing here with my hands in my pockets, to me restrains the ability of my mind to remember what it is I'm singing about. Instead, if I engage my body to remind myself that what I'm talking about, what I'm singing about right now matters more than anything in the world. Well, look at me. I'm a physical person. I make all sorts of weird motions. So wouldn't my worship look that way as I proclaim God's word, God's truth? What we do physically can help us as we worship. So yes. Sometimes we bow when we pray. Sometimes we raise our hands as we rejoice about who God is. Sometimes we're moved to bow our heads in reverence, knowing who God is. So what we do physically can encourage our spiritual worship, but it's not merely physical worship. It's not merely physical. Worship also is not merely emotional The call to worship in spirit means worship is not merely feeling sad or feeling reverent or feeling guilty. Sensing God's work and presence. If we only worshipped when we felt that way, we'd be misunderstanding that worship is spiritual work. It's a spiritual thing. Worship, God says, Jesus says, here is spiritual. It comes from those who are alive in God, reconciled, able to speak and interact and commune and praise God as a divine, image-bearing recreation. I think back to John chapter 3 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. And he's told him that to see and enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, he says, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Only people who are born again then, he's saying, only people who are brought to life in their spirit and of the spirit can truly worship a God who is spirit. God is seeking spiritual worshipers. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we come to God made alive in God, engaging the very core of who he made us to be to worship God. But God is also seeking truthful worshipers. Truth calls for the spiritual worship to be consistent with what God teaches, what scripture teaches, and centered around the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. To be truthful, then, in our worship, perhaps we could say includes approaching with honesty. If we are to worship in spirit and truth, truth would demand at the very least that as we approach God to worship him, we're worshiping him truthfully, in honesty, not deceiving ourselves. I mean God cares about our motivations and our hearts as we live before him. We won't ever fool him. Right? He knows who we are. He knows what's distracting us today. He knows what's overwhelming us right now. So as we come to him, it's important that we try not to fool ourselves in the process, pushing that out of our minds or, or faking it in that sense. He said to the prophet Hosea that he desires steadfast love, not the activity of sacrifice. Knowledge of him rather than the activity of burning offerings. We ought to have integrity as we seek to enjoy God and live in the light of his worth. So let's approach with honesty to worship in truth, repenting before God who offers already forgiveness and mercy and wants to restore us so they're not living this duplicit life before him. God is seeking truthful worshipers, which also means living and thinking Biblically, God's word is our foundation. It is the way he has left for us to know God. So when we worship in truth, we think, we live, and we obey the Bible. Because we don't give God the glory he deserves when we don't submit to the truth he inspired. So at Bethel Church, we want to elevate the truth of God's word, proclaim it, teach it, equip it, so that we can know and follow and obey and submit to God's truth. We worship in truth, believing in and through Jesus. As Jesus was sharing with the woman here at this well in Samaria, in a surprising, unexpected conversation, he reveals God's heart for worshipers. And the woman maybe adds her piece to the conversation as God, through Jesus, is revealing his heart for worshipers, the woman says, hey, we've been waiting for a Messiah. We, we've been waiting for a Messiah to, to teach us who God is. We, we want to know who that God is so, so that we can worship him. We want to know and understand this conversation, this conversation, This debate about which temple and which mountain we can worship on. We want to know more. We want to be able to worship in that truth you talked about. We want to be able to be spiritual like you're calling us to be. We've been waiting for that Messiah, she says. And Jesus says in verse 25, I who speak to you am he. I, who speak to you, am he. You've been waiting for Messiah to tell you the truth, to make, bring you life in your spirits, and I, who am with you, am he. So, worship centers around believing in and worshiping Jesus. To worship the truth will always include worshiping with Jesus as the center Of our joy. He is the truth, the way, and the life. Church family, to grow here at Bethel Church, we must worship God. We must worship God in spirit, we must worship God in truth, we must worship God centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, adoring and giving him the worth he deserves. Alive in God, accurately understanding him, energized by his grace, living according to his truth. And so to do that, to equip worshipers, this is a bit of an inside look into who Bethel Church is. And we'll maybe look at an inside look about who we ought to be as God's believers, to equip worshipers Bethel Church must host gatherings that elevate Jesus. We're called to come together and to assemble the spiritual body of Christ. And the central focus of that ought to be to elevate Jesus. As a church, we want to be surprising enough, but predictable enough, and excellent enough, but Developing enough and practical enough but lofty enough that for anybody who steps into this family, what they'll actually see isn't anything we do but is the person who made it all possible. That as we sing these songs and as we look at his word, we're not noticing how we do it. We're not even noticing the room that we've invested in. We're noticing the God who called us to him we're reminded of his love for us in a new and a fresh and a deeper way that motivates us to love each other and serve one another and sacrifice our lives for the kingdom of God. So we host gatherings that elevate Jesus and we equip saints with the truth of God's word. That's our way of leveraging this priority of worship to host gatherings that elevate Jesus and equip his people from the truth of God's word. To that end, there's a there's a tension that has to be balanced. How do you equip God's people? I Man, there's a thousand ways, and maybe we ought to do all of them. But we what we have to do is to refuse to separate the spiritual living that God calls his people to and the biblical truth that he's provided for his church. We have to avoid the extreme of, of a dead truth that would allow for people who don't even know Jesus to understand what the Bible says. We have to avoid a dead truth and we also have to avoid passionate nonsense where people who might even know and be made new by God end up hearing and believing and holding to lies about God's truth. We have to avoid dead truth and passionate nonsense and instead point people to Jesus and equip them from the truth of God's word. There's a tension there how to engage the right programs and priorities to hold each other accountable and put each other in community so that we can really be known and we can really be found and we can really be pursued and we can really be taught and we can extinguish any distractions. Church family we will hold loosely to how we do what we do and we'll hold with a grip that will never let go to who it is that's called us and to what he's called us to worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So what do we do? Paul would say that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Worship him with all you do, whether that's investing generously or praying constantly or living obediently, whatever it is that's going to involve delighting in the God who's made you and called you. With all of who you are and what you do, we were made to worship God, not to be worshipped. And I'd like to invite our, our band to come to the stage as we continue to engage with that truth. Because we were made to worship God, not be worshipped ourselves. As we cultivate that worship, I'm struck by two enemies that so often work against our worship. The first would probably be understanding the worth of Jesus. And the other would be mis- sorry misunderstanding the worth of Jesus. That's one enemy. The other enemy is misunderstanding our own worth. We can't misunderstand the worth of Jesus because when we fail to understand the all-surpassing glory and holiness and worth of Jesus Christ, we blind ourselves to seeing the world as it truly is we have to savor and wonder at who God is and his all-surpassing worth and all that we do. We also have to understand our own worth. Because when we find our identity or worth in anything else, in what we own or what we've done or what we've failed at or how we've succeeded or how others think of us, we find our worth in anything else, we end up delighting in or, or hoping in or, or ultimately worshiping those dry wells. Can't satisfy us. We'll keep going back to them day after day, looking for a worth or an identity that's always going to result in us needing more. But when we start to see that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer, our identity, our treasure, that the most praiseworthy God who purchased our lives at, his, at the cost of his own, is our rescuer, then our worth becomes precisely what God was willing to sacrifice. Unmatchable worth. When we understand that our worth is based on the worth of Jesus giving his life for us, creating us to know him, and then redeeming us back to know him, then we can rejoice in an identity and a value that's fixed, that's unshakable, that's greater than anything else we could achieve or dream to become. We can find hope alone and rejoice alone and praise alone our Savior and King. When we understand His worth, what His worth does to our worth, gives us an unmatchable worth, we can worship Him, seeing our unworthiness transformed into unimaginable worth because it's anchored in its source, the all-surpassing word of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Jesus came to a well, an unexpected place, and met a woman who was looking, perhaps, for the permission to worship and know God. And she found in Jesus living water, satisfaction that could well up within her forever, And that living water, Jesus said, demands and overflows in true spiritual and true worship that God is looking for. Spiritual water, spiritual life leads to worship. Isaiah says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, people who I have formed for myself. That, here's the purpose, I have formed, giving them water so that they may praise and declare my praise. Living water leads to the worship of Jesus Christ, our way, our truth, and life. We want to be disciples of Jesus Christ who are making their lives all about him. So we must worship our worthy Lord. Jesus will be praised.